Welcome to Shocktober, the byword is celebrating the return of the spooky season with another month of Nerd Nightmare. So stick around. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to episode 122 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Dave. I'm here with my buddy Chris. And this week, we have sort of an inversion of our usual setup. Because of the return of Shocktober, we are once again dedicating our last segment to Nerd Nightmare, my attempt to introduce Chris to as many horror classics as possible. Since that means that we will not be doing nerd commendations for the next few weeks, we decided to take to this week's big talk and do a supersized commendation uh, hoedown, basically. So Chris and I both have decided to pick three things that we are into right now that we totally want to share with all of you. But of course, before we get into that, it is time for... Chris, what's new? Well, I forgot my overalls if we're having a hoedown. But, um, well, uh, so there's been a lot of buzz surrounding D23, or at least there was beforehand, that the Fantastic Four cast would be revealed uh, and, and a lot of other hopeful things leading into it. So it was a bit lackluster in what was actually revealed. But the things, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go over the highlights of what we did get. Um, namely, probably the most standout things were trailers for The Mandalorian Season 3, um, the new Willow franchise, which is, you know, I guess, a continuation from the the older film. Um, fans in person got a first look at Indiana Jones 5 in the department of why in the hell are we doing this? Um, we had the cast reveal of the Thunderbolts, which um, includes a lot of re- repetitive powers. So, of course, we have La Contessa Valentina de Allegro di Fontaine by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, uh, David Harbour's Red Guardian, Hannah John Common's Ghost, which who is uh, holding all of the um, representation on her shoulders as the only non-white character in the bunch, uh, Wyatt Russell's U.S. Agent, Olga Kurilenko's Taskmaster, uh, ta- Taskmaster, excuse me, Sebastian Stan's Bucky Barnes, and Florence Pugh's Yelena Belova. We also got to see the lovable trio of Brie Larson, Tiana Paris, and Amon Vellani in uh, anticipation of the Marvels. And we did get a trailer for um, Werewolf by Night, which is going to be premiering soon by the... Uh, time this episode drops so mcu is full-fledged into the spooky season dave are you buying into werewolf by night i think i'll be checking it out i don't have much of a history with the comic to be honest with you i'm gonna have to uh, kind of punt back and actually read that sucker um so that that is definitely something that i would probably want to you know check out before uh you know the series pops up um the thing that actually excited me the most out of all of this stuff uh, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of be weird again. Is uh, Willow? Uh, I love 
the original Willow movie, uh, I think it's an absolute uh, blast of a movie and so underappreciated. And so the fact that they're actually bringing this franchise back is really, really cool. I really, really hope that they find uh, a you know chance to maybe cameo or something of, of Val Kilmer, at least, because his character uh, in that movie was an absolute blast as well. So, yeah, I mean, all of D23, the thing that got me most excited was Willow. Uh, of course, I'm looking forward to The Mandalorian Season 3. Um the MCU stuff is is kind of you know leaving me cold right now because you know I'm just I'm I need more you know I, I don't have a real connection with the Thunderbolts franchise so I I can't really speak to like the comic accuracy of that team it's probably not very accurate it seems like you know the dirty leftovers of everything that's been going on in Phase Four kind of thrown together um, but on the flip side I don't exactly have an issue with it either I know there's been a lot of posts on social media all these people basically have the same powers but I have never been one of those people that sits around and you know combines characters based on their power set to to try to build like a team like when people are like oh who would be on your you know ideal justice league I'm not well this is the brawler and this is the med I'm I'm not that guy I'm much more interested in character you know, how would the characters bounce off of each other, you know? And that's that's where I think this team actually has potential to be interesting. When you take Bucky Barnes and Yelena Belova already right there and you put them in a room together, I think there's potential for some very interesting character interactions. When you put, you know, Red Guardian in a, in a room with our US agent, I think that is going to be a lot of interesting character interactions. So I think there's potential there um, for interesting character interactions. There's potential there to do more with characters like you know ghost and taskmaster which didn't you know get as much to do as they should have in their original appearances so i'm fine with that as it is i'm also fine that we haven't heard anything about fantastic four because i don't want them to rush this thing i'm fine that we still haven't heard anything about any movement on an x-men franchise because i don't want them to rush that stuff you know i'm, I'm perfectly fine with the way things are going right now I guess it's the best way to put it. I think my greatest frustration with the the pivot to nerd media being the 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 in thing right now and like being such an influx in material is the lack of patience. That's my greatest frustration. Um the overwhelming criticisms that I've seen of the Rings of Power for example is like there's not enough action, there's not enough going on and it's boring. And, you know, like the same at the same time, we're seeing the same thing with the MCU and like phase four, like phase four is so boring, so boring. You just saw a 21 film masterpiece. You know, there there are a couple of hiccups along the road, but like no one has ever done anything remotely close to what they did with the Infinity Saga. And so you're and, and you just said goodbye to Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans in two of the most pivotal roles in that franchise. And you're expecting the exact same thing. And while Marvel is, you know, taking a hitting the pause button, essentially, and like reshuffling the deck, you want immediate. I don't know, immediate gratification on all this, like people complaining about like the, the, the big joke right now in phase four is like nobody's talking about the celestial sticking out of the ocean. Like, how do you want that tackled? Do you really just want like a one-off, like five-second news flash about the celestial sticking out of the ocean, just so you'll be immediately gratified? Like, have some patience. Take a deep breath for for the, the for the love of whatever god you pray to or don't. There is so much media to consume right now. 
we're at such an influx of shows and comics and movies that like if if you have ADHD it's a nightmare because it's it's hard to keep up with everything and it's hard to have like a, an extended attention span so like there's more than enough stuff for you to tap into to to be so impatient yeah i think that's probably fair um i just i'm you know sitting back relaxing i'll probably you know check out um a lot of the stuff that they've announced because you know i'm a big old nerd um that includes thunderbolts no problem i'm there for it uh, and if it's good great and if it's not you know i tried and, and and what more can you do i mean that's this is the kind of stuff that comic book fans are used to you know we wait for a month between issues most of the time so we know patience you know and we know that sometimes it takes a little while for us to figure out if a story is going to hit with us or not um we need several issues usually before we're like oh this is good or maybe this is not for me um and so this is the kind of stuff that we're used to. And I, I'm doing what I always do, which is I'm, I'm kind of taking a comic book reader's attitude and approach towards the media that is, you know, comic book adjacent and, and, and nerd media in general. I'm just, a, I'm just a comic book reader doing what I usually do. Yeah. So at this point, Dave, um, as much as I have ranted and raved about my love for my Xbox Series S um, and Game Pass and everything that has to do with being an Xbox gamer, Microsoft should be sponsoring the pod. So it, I'm, I'm going to tag you in here because it, it gets a little repetitive on my part. Yeah, so uh, there's been some interesting stuff going on recently in regards to uh, pricing. Uh, the PlayStation 5 is receiving uh, price increases in uh, numerous territories. Uh, the kind of thinking behind that seems to be because of you know inflation and global markets and the difficulty of getting um you know parts for it and and chip shortages and all this various stuff that uh things are just kind of bumping up and you know in different territories they're doing different things um australia for example is going from like um my goodness uh it's going to up to like 750 australian dollars and something oh no it started at 750 australian it's going up to 800 right so it's bouncing up in the uk the disc edition is going from 450 pounds to 480 pounds right um in the european union it's going from 500 uh euro to 550 euro um so everything's kind of going up on on this console which is kind of the the opposite of what we're used to um from uh, console makers usually they you know put the hardware out and then they sell as many as they can at that price point and then they start dropping they come up with a cheaper way of doing it over the years and and so the trajectory of um, consoles is generally downward so this is really um it's kind of hit the the gaming world really hard like what in the world is going on here you know obviously these are unprecedented times and all economically but still it seems like a bad look for a company and needless to say Xbox is already um capitalizing on that because uh while uh in japan for the tokyo game show phil spencer appeared on cnbc and talked about you know some of the uh the business things that are going on with with microsoft and you know their attempt uh, attempted appeal to more of the japanese market which they've never really done very well in capturing and so on and so forth but then you know they brought up these price increases for, for the playstation and here is um what spencer said here's a quote 
we're always evaluating our business going forward. I don't think we can ever say on anything that we will never do something. But when we look at our consoles today, Series X and Series S, we think value is incredibly important. We love the position of the Series S in the market, which is our lower cost console. Over half of our new players that we're finding are coming in through the Series S. And I can definitely say we have no plans today to raise the prices of our consoles. We don't think it's the right move for us at this point to be raising prices on our consoles. Now, obviously, with Xbox being attached to Microsoft, they have uh, much deeper pockets. And so they can probably take a bigger hit when it comes to these you know, economic times. But as I mentioned, it's just not a good look for Sony. Um, this is not the only topic that came up. There was also the topic of uh, you know, competitiveness in the video game market. Uh, the recent Activision acquisition has really um, kind of gotten like a, a console war-like vibe going on between Xbox and PlayStation again, particularly because Sony is shaking in its space boots about Call of Duty and that uh, Xbox could potentially make Call of Duty no longer multi-platform in the future, which would be a huge hit to their business. And I'm not a big Call of Duty fan, but even I have to acknowledge it is a big moneymaker. And so... Um, you know, the, the topic of acquisition came up, and here is what Spencer said about that. Tencent is the largest gaming company on the planet today, and they continue to heavily invest in gaming content and game creators. Sony is a larger business than we are in gaming today, and they continue to invest. When you look at the investments that we've made, it's a highly, highly competitive market. We strive to be a major player here, whether that's investing in our internal teams or building new partnerships. Uh, so in essence... Um, with people criticizing Xbox for basically buying up all these studios, it seems like Spencer is indicating that uh, Xbox has no intention of stopping that as they try to build uh, a more competitive company when it comes to going up against uh, you know companies like Tencent and uh, and Sony. So very interesting stuff coming from from Xbox, and uh, I think once again I feel very positive about all of this stuff. What's your take, Chris? I, yeah, so at, at the risk of, you know, sounding like this is a repeat episode, I mean, like, I, I've been an Xbox gamer since the initial release of the first Xbox console. So I've been, you know, almost, what is it, 20 years now as as an Xbox gamer. And I've never been happier. I mean, when you combine things like the Xbox Game Pass and you're getting AAA releases on you know, on the day that they're released at no extra cost, in addition to your fourteen ninety nine a month or, or, or what have you. I mean, like, I'm, I'm extremely happy. I recently upgraded to a Series S um, with, like, the Affirm payment style. So I'm only paying, like, $25 a month for a brand-new console. Um, it, it is, it's just an embarrassment of riches. And as someone who, you know has never had a lot of financial means to just, you know, just go crazy with, I have to be very methodical in my purchases and I have to be very frugal in my investments. And when it comes to media, when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to leisure activities, you'd be hard pressed to find for me a better investment when it comes to Xbox. Um, I, I'm just, I could not be happier. And the fact that Xbox is holding steady on their price points and the fact that you can get a Series S for, I don't even know what I paid for, like $250, $300, while Xbox, or, or excuse me, while PlayStation is going upwards of $500, $750. 
and they're really relying on the elitism when it comes to the gaming community. Like the most, most of the time, and I've detailed this ad nauseum as well, is like the, the experience that I have when I come into contact with people who are PlayStation gamers, it is, it is grossly elitist. And so you can have your elitist attitude and your I'm your holier than thouness over there while I'm saving two hundred dollars on a console and saving countless dollars when it comes to free releases. So I, I'm very very happy with my purchase, um, and it's it's a really great time. More on that in our Byward Big Talk. Yeah, so um, I think that's uh, my cue to go ahead and say, what do you think of these news stories? Find us on social media. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. And I do not want to stand in the way any further of getting to this ByWord Big Talk. So stick around because after the break, we're going to give you a triple dose of Nerd Commendations. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome back. And it is once again time for our... I feel awkward here. Should I play the Byword Big Talk jingle or should I go ahead and play the Nerd Commendation jingle? Um, because this week, the Byword Big Talk is a king, dare I say queen-sized... Uh, nerd commendation as uh, Chris and I are celebrating Nerd Nightmare in our usual nerd commendation slot. We wanted to make sure that you don't miss out on us discussing all of the cool stuff that we are currently reading or, or playing or watching. Um, really, in my case, just reading, I'm going to be honest. Um, and so we're going to jump right in with uh, Chris giving us his first recommendation. Chris, what have you got for us? Listen, man, I know that I am always the person who rails against the temptations of nostalgia, even though we just had a recent episode where we had some nostalgic exceptions. Um, but I made another big exception here. And one of those, I, I pre-warned you that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles will always find their way into my heart, no matter the year of release, no matter how rampant the nostalgia bait is. And it almost feels like we were prophets in a way, Dave. Remember like a year or two ago when we were just begging for uh, a Ninja Turtle video game release and we had a two for one special this year um, with the previous nerd commendation uh, in Shredder's Revenge. Um, and now we have the Cowabunga Collection. So the Cowabunga Collection compiles 13 different TMNT games that were developed by Konami between 89 and 94 on a various, uh, you know, collection of platforms, uh, whether that's the NES an arcade, a game boy, the SNES, the Sega Genesis. I mean, this is an embarrassment of riches and this is well worth, you know, a purchase. I think it was 39 99 that I got it on the, um, the Microsoft digital store. And, you know, while I am, I am cautious when it comes to nostalgia for nostalgia's sake. Um, I put a, a, a Twitter post out there that, that was really, when I realized what was happening, it was really powerful for me emotionally. I think back to my first video gaming system that I've detailed on the show before, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. And one of the first games that I really fell in love with 
and I was about six years old, was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4 Turtles in Time, playing that on the SNES. Um, I never got past the the pirate level. I always died there. Um, but I was able to share that this week um, with my six-year-old son. And, and there was something, it was almost like this time warp of sharing my favorite game from when I was six years old with my six-year-old son was incredibly powerful was like i was like tearing up as we're not just like having him play this game but we're playing couch co-op multiplayer something that we have begged video game developers for in the age of online multiplayer we have begged video game developers far and wide to please give us more couch co-op and our prayers were answered, Dave, in this game. And so it was really, really cool. I was Raph. He was Leo. He's, his favorite's Leo. I can't slide him for that. And when he turned to me and said, Daddy, we make a great team. I said, no, son, we make one shell of a team. And it was a really powerful moment for me as a father. And so go get the Cowabunga collection. And Dave, I know as a proud nerdy dad, as soon as your little guy can hold the controller... Y'all need to jump on this Cowabunga collection. I'm ready for it, man, because I'm a big, 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 big fan of, uh, you know, old school beat-em-ups and stuff. And so Turtles in Time looms large in my life as well. Maybe not quite as large as in yours, but uh, I'm a big fan of this. I have to ask you, Chris, since you're nerd commending this sucker, uh, are the Game Boy Turtles games on here as well? Yes. So we've got Follow the Foot Clan, which I know that you have expressed love for as well. So, yes, Follow the Foot Clan, Back from the Sewers is on there. Um, Radical Rescue. I mean, you name it, it's on there. And what I love about this, especially with like the arcade versions of the game, um, I I remember as a kid being so frustrated because I would just die and like I'd have to start from the beginning. So the, the advent of being able to save your game progress and if you press the start button, it literally says that the control is to insert coin. So my son KJ had a lot of fun with just pressing the start button over and over and over again. And he had 205 lives the last time we checked. So I know that I complained a little bit on Shredder's Revenge of, of the level of difficulty. Now, I put that on normal. I should, probably, should have put it on easy. But the fact that we're not worried about the level of difficulty, which is something that modern video game developers I have railed against because it's so frustrating as someone who has, you know, health issues that keep me from having the best reaction time in the gaming world. But the fact that we essentially have endless lives and it's all just vibes and it's about the experience with your family. I I can't say enough about that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting that this kind of stuff is, uh, you know, being re-released. I'm a big fan even of like the, the Mega Man collections from a few years ago, the Castlevania mm-hmm. collections, you know, so much of classic gaming is being preserved and made available. And as somebody who's, you know, a big fan of those eras, it's it's great that, uh, you know, we're going to get access to these things on modern consoles. Heck, GoldenEye is getting cleaned up by I Rare and it's, com- and it's coming to Game Pass. I mean, how crazy is that? I saw that. How was that not our uh, nerd news story, by the way? Oh my yeah, God. Maybe, we definitely need to talk about that at some point. Maybe when it's out, we can play it and kind of get a vibe for it and see how well they did, you know, polishing it. But I'm just a big fan that all of this, this stuff is being preserved, Chris. Okay, so, Dave, get your bleep button ready because you're definitely going to need it for the Nerd Nightmare segment. This one's on you because you told me a couple weeks ago 
I just bought a bunch of indie comics. Be ready for some weird when it comes to nerd commendations. All right, so what's word? What's first up on your weird nerd commendations? <laughs> well, uh, th- this this might not be um, a- as weird as uh, you actually think, since this is you know this is from Image Comics. Um, and can I say that it's way overdue that I got my grubby little hands on this series because. I, uh, I I bought the first volume in trade paperback um, a few years back and and read it and was really really um, fascinated by it. You know, I, I thought there was something here immediately that I can get into, um, and then I completely lost track of it. And in the meantime, you know, the series is completed. Uh, back in 2017, they started releasing you know the deluxe editions, which I got my grubby little hands on. And, uh, and this is what I'm talking about, man. This is the good stuff. We're talking about Image Comics, uh, a series called Revival. Um, and Revival is uh, written by Tim Seeley, whose work I have spoken about on the pod before uh, as the guy who created and wrote most of uh, the various hack slash uh, miniseries. Um, so, you know, this sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek take on slasher films um, which is, you know, has has a as sort of a, a following online, I would say. Um, but I, this completely uh, blew me away because it's so far for, oh, removed from this, the other stuff that I've seen, uh, you know, Seely Wright. Uh, the artist on the series is Mike Norton, who has done, you know, v- various stints uh, in superhero comics here and there and everywhere. But again, his work here is something completely different and, and really... Um, blew me away. So the best way to describe this book is that it's rural noir. Uh, it's sort of a, a mystery uh, set in uh, you know snow-covered Wisconsin. Uh, here's the tagline from uh, Image Comics. One day in rural Wisconsin, the dead come back to life. Now it's up to Officer Dana Cypress to deal with the media scrutiny, religious zealots, and government quarantine that has come with them. In a town where the living have to learn to deal with those who are supposed to be dead, Officer Cypress must solve a brutal murder, and everyone alive or undead is a suspect. A beautiful farm noir that puts a new twist on the zombie genre. Um, dude... I, I can't even begin to describe how well the sucker is written and, and how cool the art is on this. Um, it does all the kind of things that a horror movie is supposed to do. There are, you know, the, the scary moments, there's the gross-out moments, and boy, boy, oh boy, does the art carry those moments well. Uh, but it's also a great mystery that literally does not get resolved until all the way to the very end of the series. So you, you might as well strap in, because the central murder that... Uh, that is, you know, the, the sort of the main subject of this. It definitely takes a while to figure out, especially also how it ties in to the larger mystery of, you know, how did all these people suddenly come back from the dead, you know, and what's the purpose behind this? Um, the, the relationships are fascinating in this. There's so many interesting relationships going on. Dana Cypress, it works, you know, for for her her own father, the sheriff, um, she, you know, got, has a younger sister and they have a very complicated relationship. Um, the sheriff harbors a secret from the past. Um, uh, she has to also, she has a son, uh, Dana Cypress does with, and, you know, is, is divorced. And so she's dealing with, you know, uh, that situation of, you know, sharing custody and trying to raise a, you know, raise her kid, right. Um, 
there's something going on in the woods. Uh, the, these glowing figures, and what do those mean? And do they have a connection to the you know the revivers? It's just such a cool um, horror slash mystery series. You know, it, I absolutely adored it. Every little detour in it, every, every like narrative twist. The art is absolutely gorgeous. It was 47 issues. It's been collected in uh, four uh, deluxe hardcover collections uh, and is absolutely highly recommended. It's an absolutely fantastic series. You had me at Tim Silly, my guy. Uh, my favorite DC comic um, probably that I've ever read outside of Farscape because it's untouchable, it's ineffable, it's a perfect book. Um, Tim Seeley wrote the latter parts of Green Lanterns, one of my favorite DC reading experiences with my my one and only Jessica Cruz. So I'm there. I'm I'm in, I'm in simply on Tim Seeley being attached uh, alone. So I, I'm in. It's fascinating how we come from completely different angles to this yeah. guy, you know, because Seeley for me is the hack and slash guy. And I absolutely love hack and slash. I love, love, love it. It's such a great send up of, you know, slasher flicks and that whole mythology around them. Um, and then, and then you come from, come to him from the superhero side. And here we are meeting in the middle on a book that I think you're going to find really interesting. Um, it, it's almost nerd nightmare adjacent just because it has those horror infused elements to it. Um, Man, it's just such a fantastic book. It really blew me away. All right, Chris, what is your second recommendation? All right, Dave, we may need to clear this out because this may be the hottest take I've ever had. Maybe it's not that hot. I have no idea. X-Men Red by Al Ewing, a previous nerd commendation. It might be the best comic book I've ever read. Issue for issue. I just read the sixth issue this past week, which was released. I'm still shaken to my core two months later after the third issue. It's the first time I've ever read a comic book and screamed in shock at the last page reveal. It is consistently like if you loved Immortal Hulk, like this is in that same vein of just like consistency from issue to issue of just like top tier writing character work deep intuitive character exploration i don't know how you like it is such an unenviable task to take a character like storm who is far and away one of the most popular characters in all of comics let alone just marvel who has been a difficult character to write because she's perfect she's she's flawless and so a lot of writers have expressed how difficult it is to write her because when you're writing someone, you want to talk about the good, the bad, and the indifferent. You look at something like Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil, which I'm thoroughly enjoying right now, all based on your recommendation. You're, you're looking at the inner ethos of Matt Murdock and all of the things that are going on, going on in his brain. Storm has been presented by throughout her history as like this perfect character and so precious few writers have written stories that are good for storm and al ewing has written the best storm that i've seen since claremont like it, it's it's crazy and as like the resident president and founder of the magneto fan club the magneto was right movement this is the best magneto since claremont it's not close. 
this tackles so many different themes and thought processes and issues in culturally it's so inclusive and it's so expansive and to think that a white guy from england is so good when it means when it comes to like diversity in his writing you're just shocked to find out that he's a white guy and it, it, al ewing is truly the standard when it comes to allyship and and when it comes to sociopolitical ideology how do you build a brand new government from scratch this game uh, excuse me this series is so explorative explorative is that the word i don't know but it, it's so creative and every single issue just has you begging for more to the point where i'm like is it is it x-men red week yet um, and one of my all-time favorite characters in Sunspot, Roberto da Costa, nobody writes him like Al Ewing. And to see him under the pen of Al Ewing, and, and no shade to Jonathan Hickman. Jonathan Hickman gets, rightfully so, much acclaim for his connected universe, for his extended plots, and his world-building. But Al Ewing is the best in the game for me. And, and every single issue of X-Men Red has been a masterpiece. Even when you're telling like B storylines about like the day in, day out operations of what is now planet Araco, formerly known as Mars. This, this most recent issue um, about Craig of NASA and this, this scientist who goes to what is now planet Araco for scientific purposes and in his interactions with the Iraqi people, this this civilization who is has suffered in chains for thousands of years and is now free for the first time in so long, how do they build back better? It's it's an absolute masterpiece of a comic book, and I cannot recommend it enough. It sounds really interesting. Of course, my uh, you know history with the X Men franchise is sort of a back and forth in that some of their older stuff I can actually get into and some of the newer stuff I'm still struggling with. However, uh, Ewing is, is, is just a really good writer, so I'm, I'm definitely willing to give this one a shot. Um, I should have known there would have been at least one X-Men recommendation in there, Chris. Yeah, well, you know me. I'm, I'm, I'm nothing if not consistent. Now, Dave, are, are you going second language on me? I, I, I kind of am. Uh, let's get a little, uh, little Belgian up in here. Um, so I had, you know, um, it's not a secret to any of our listeners that I've grown up in, in Germany. And because of that, I, uh, I had some interesting reading experiences as a kid. I've spoken before about this, uh, very cool Mickey Mouse detective series that I can't seem to find in English anywhere. Um, I'm a big fan of the Asterix books. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just, I have to say Lucky Luke is another one that I absolutely adored when I was a kid. So a lot of this, this European, um, comic book market, which is very, very different in a lot of ways. When you're looking at European original stuff, you know, a lot of that stuff is usually released in, in hardback. It's significantly larger, uh, in my experience, uh, than the American comic book format. Um, there's just a lot to, a lot to love there. Um, and so I have recently, uh, decided I'm going to try to get back into um some of these 
uh, European style books. And thankfully, I found that there is now a, a sort of conglomerate of, of European countries that have gotten together and uh, with support, actually, um, from the um, creative European program of the European Union. Um, they are trying to get more European comics out there into the world translated. And so Europe Comics is now big on my list as um, a, I guess, quote-unquote publisher um, that I'm, you know, really pursuing some of their output. And my first attempt at getting back into some of this stuff, um, I had to absolutely check out immediately just because of the very, very cool um, art um, immediately very striking even on the covers is L's that is E-L-L-E and then in parentheses an S uh, the script is by Kit Toussaint the art by Aveline Stockhart um, and it's it almost visually uh, looks like like something like a Pixar movie absolutely bright vibrant um, beautifully cartoony uh, it kind of immediately drew me in um, the uh, original publisher uh, is uh, Le Lombard in Belgium uh, and the story tagline, according to Europe Comics, is this. Elle is just another teenage girl, most of the time. Bubbly and good-natured, she wastes no time making friends on her first day at her new school. But Elle has a secret. She hasn't come alone. She's brought with her a colorful mix of personalities which come out when she least expects it. Who is Elle really? And will her new friends stand by her when they find out the truth? Um, so uh, a lot has been made online, at, you know, various sources like Goodreads, that the first book, and there are currently two that have been translated, that the first book in the series, The New Girl, um, is sort of almost a beautiful piece of representation for people who suffer from uh, dissociative identity disorder, uh, as L has multiple personalities, each one uh, with, you know, her own unique uh, quirks and attitudes, and how she tries to navigate the various personality changes, and how her friends try to navigate those changes, uh, makes for you know fun hijinks. It's very um, you know light-hearted storytelling. Really, uh, there's not any you know end of the world stuff that we can talk about here, which is a nice change of pace because so much of what the American comic book market puts out is you know, action-oriented or horror-oriented. And this is very sort of, I don't want to say all ages. Uh, I think the age rating that Europe Comics recommends is like 12 plus, but it has sort of almost a middle grades vibe to it. It's very, very cool. Um, by the second volume, things start becoming, uh, I guess, more leaning more and more into, I would say, like fantasy as one of Elle's personality sort of takes over. Um, and doesn't let her surface again, and she traverses the the inner workings of her mind, which is almost like a fantastical landscape, using you know various other personalities to try to help her surface again and 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 reclaim her life. Um, the artwork continues to be strong. It's it's a very very uh, it's it's just a very lighthearted and cool, but there still are stakes. I do want to point out that, you know, when we're talking about comic books, we're talking about in the European market, we're generally talking something more uh, akin to like graphic novels here. So the, the first volume clocks in at 90 pages, the second at 96. Um, but they're just really, really cool, man, and totally worth uh, checking out. I'll also note um, that uh, Abilene Stockhart does something really, really cool with um, 
signaling to the reader which personality has taken over as each personality has their own hair color. So although there is no actual visual change in story, it's not like, you know, um, the, the other characters who are hair change or something. We always get a signal of which personality is in charge based on the hair color of L in any given scene. And that's a really cool shorthand. So this, this comes highly recommended. I think the third book is said to be uh, released in translation uh, in May of 2023 or March of 2023. So there is still more coming, but the first two volumes are out there and, and totally worth a look. Yeah, I, I love this. I mean, like, it's it's no secret what a language nerd I am. Um, also, when it comes to, you know, media that's created in other countries, I'll always think back to Academy Award winning director Bong Joon-ho uh, and w- what he said when in his expect- acceptance speech at the Oscars was when he said, once you overcome the one install barrier of subtitles, you'll be introduced to so many more amazing films. And I think we have as American consumers far too often is this very narrow point of view and vision of what we should consume in media. And I think once we diversify that and open ourselves up to other possibilities, you know, the world is our oyster when it comes to enjoying stuff. So I'm definitely going to have to check this out. And I do want to point out that uh, if you don't want to have to try to like hunt this sucker down, like, um, specifically, you know, physically somewhere. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a struggle there. It is available digitally through the Kindle and Comixology apps. Um, and I do believe it runs about $3.99 for the first volume and $3.99 for the second volume. So once again, digital to the rescue. All right, Chris, what is your final nerd commendation? So um, this is this is the title that on this show in particular, we have followed for, for several years. Um, both of us being very attached to the character of Spider-Man and his narrative journey. Um, And so when this new creative team was initially announced and we saw the solicits, I was very apprehensive because while I think the absolute world of Zeb Wells um, on the heels of a book like Hellions, which uh, if it didn't win Eisner's, it certainly should have. uh, One of the absolute best of the age of Krakoa uh, titles. Um, but then in the, in the initial tease, you saw the tropes were all out and in full form. Peter Parker's broke again. He can't be with MJ. He's jobless. Norman's on the prowl. Um, so I, I, I knew I was going to read it, but at the same time, I was just like, what is this going to be? Is this going to be a disappointment again? Um, And I think it's time for all of us webheads to adjust our expectations. And once we do that, I think we're going to start enjoying these books a whole lot more. When you have C.B. Cebulski going at C2E2 and just said something as laughably stupid and tone deaf as we want Peter Parker to be as relatable as possible... And I'm paraphrasing heavily, but he essentially said being married is not relatable. And so after you have a good laugh at that, um, you know, if you expect them to be in wedded matrimony, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. At the same time, the the ability of Zeb Wells, who I should have known better, to weave in and out of these editorial mandates, which they're as clear as day 
what he's written in these first nine issues is nothing short of miraculous. Um, you might say it's amazing or spectacular. Um, and I, I'm just such a fan for the voice that he gives to Peter. And so ignore all the obstacles of all the tropes of him being broke and MJ issues and all that jazz. What he's done with like the revitalization, for example, of the character of Tombstone um, and the nuance that he's presented to that character. Anytime you have Robbie Robertson involved heavily, uh, you know it's a good Spider-Man story. Um, and so I, I'm just really a big fan of the quips. Um, you know, that's something that you and I both go up for when it comes to Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and when it comes to like the in-fight quips written by Wells, it's top notch. The jokes are always landing. And so this has been a pleasant surprise for me enjoying off the heels of something um, that was canned. Maybe even that was the plan, but canned way before it's time, in my opinion, with like Amazing Spider-Man Beyond and something we detailed to a, a, you know, a severe extent. Um, but I'm really, really enjoying what Zeb Wells is doing. Um I have a conflicting relationship with John Romita Jr.'s art. Sometimes I love it. Sometimes I'm ready to transition to something else. This most recent issue um, had Pat Gleason back, and it was absolutely gorgeous just to look at. I love his take on the goblin suit or whatever we're calling this now. Um, so I'm really, really enjoying what I'm reading from the Amazing Spider-Man title. Yeah, so um, I do too. Um although I have a very sort of love-hate relationship with it because I like what Wells is doing, um, specifically like with stuff like revitalizing Tombstone and the like. And at the same time, uh, I am one of those fans that's a little frustrated with the the constant reversion of Peter Parker um, as, a, as a character who's, you know, all, all superheroes to some extent always revert to some kind of status quo. It's just that his status quo is so unfortunate uh, for, for Peter Parker, and there's it's almost a sense that like every time he reverts, that editorial just loves seeing the character suffer and suffer and suffer, and not like in a fun like you know obstacles to overcome way, but in a in a in an almost masochistic. He has no money, he has yes. no friends, everybody hates him. It's 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 such a a downer read for a superhero comic every time that he reverts to you know no money, no friends, disappoints Aunt May, everybody hates him. You know, like it's just like. Uh, I feel so crappy here. Uh, it's not a fun read at that point. So the things that Wells is doing, I absolutely love. I, I would love to know how much of what he you know, has on his plate and in his book right now is editorially mandated and how much is him. Um, because I have a feeling there is some stuff that he was kind of just handed and he has to deal with. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, the, the whole like, um, you know, good Norman Osborn that we got from the previous run. Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily something I would have fun writing. It's like, no. oh, look, Norman Osborn had all his sins eaten away. And like, you know, I don't think I would have fun with that. I'd have much more fun with he's faking and secretly he's still a bad guy. And let's see what he does. You know, that would be much more fun. So I don't know how much of this kind of stuff that he got stuck with. Um, I am growing very, very weary of the whole um, continual, continual efforts of editorial to push some kind of will they won't they when it's very clear that they won't yes. like that the editorial the editorial um, structure at Marvel is very much against uh, a, a full on reunion between Peter and Mary Jane and that's fine you know then then say that and do that and don't try to like 
string people along who are still hoping for it. And, and, you know, when, when behind the scenes, you're very clear that you're never going to do this. Um, it, you know, it's just not, it's not a fun read at that point. So those elements are not fun, but what Wells is bringing to the table absolutely is. Yeah. Um, the Norman, the whole Norman thing of it all, like as much as I was enjoying the first couple of issues when they, when they introduced Norman into this, I'm like, okay, this is, this is the point where it falls off for me, but that's, that's a prime example for me of making chicken salad out of chicken. You know what? Cause I really have enjoyed the back and forth between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Wells's writing really shines, um, in, in a situation that I don't think he necessarily might go for, but I, I don't want to speak for the guy, obviously. I think for me, the highlight for me has been the, um, the, the, the recent vulture issues. I think that was issues seven and eight. I thought that was really great. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dave, this is literally the least surprising thing of the day. I don't know about that, man, because um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And yes, I know the creator and, and showrunner is he who must not be named these days. And it's it's a we, we've talk, spoken at length about, you know, separating art from artists and how that can be extremely difficult. Buffy, though, in particular, was so formative um, to me as a, as a person and as how, how I enjoy um, certain certain styles of writing and and how I approach horror and you know inversions in of tropes and all of this kind of stuff really in, in a lot of ways starts in my life with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and so I I can't quite get myself to completely reject uh, that television series um, especially considering that he who must not be named was certainly not the only person working on this show. And I think it would be a discredit to somebody, for example, like Sarah Michelle Gellar and her stellar work in that show of bringing this character to life. Um, so I'm, I, I remain a fan. Um, and so I very closely followed when, I want to say it was Dark Horse uh, that had the license at the time. I may be wrong, but I know they were doing um, continuations uh, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer after the series ended. They were doing a season 8, a season 9, a season 10. I think they went through like season 11. And they basically created additional seasons of the show, which was a lot of fun, um, kind of build on the mythology and the continuity. And I was totally there for it. And then Boom Studios got the license, and the book that they announced was a Buffy reboot. That's tough, man. <laughs> you know, so I don't think this me talking about Boom's... Uh, you know, reboot comics in a positive manner is a, a general given, you know, because if you have a show and a continuity that you love and then they come around and they reboot it, it's not going to be your immediate reaction to say, oh, great, it's going to be the characters I love, but completely different, you know? Um, imagine a DS9 reboot and they recast everybody and we have, you know, a whole new approach to Benjamin Sisko. Now he wears shades, I don't know. Um, it's just, it, it feels odd. So... I kind of went into the the reboot books recently uh, w with some bit of trepidation and came out the other end saying most of this was actually really good. And as a, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, I found a lot of this quite enjoyable. Um, so, you know, shocking development. Um, it it probably did not hurt that a, a woman wrote most of the 34-issue reboot series um, Jordi Belair, and that the first volume featured art by Dan Mora. My God, do I love Dan Mora's work. Um, now, obviously, um, other artists rotated in, um, and eventually a, a new writer took over, um, which was a Jeremy Lambert, who kind of wrapped up 
uh, the series, which ended with issue 34. Um, but still, uh, the series is is interesting. Uh, so this is, uh, according to the tagline from Boom Studios, this is the Buffy Summers you know, who wants that average te- what every average teenager wants, friends at her new school, decent grades, and to escape her imposed destiny as the next in a long line of vampire slayers tasked with, with defeating the forces of evil. But her world looks a lot more like the one outside your window as Jordi Belair and Russ Manning and Dan Mo- oh, Russ Manning award winner Dan Mora bring Buffy into a new era with new challenges, new friends, uh, and a few enemies you might already recognize. But the more things change, the more they stay s- the same as the gang faces brand new big bads and the threat lurking beneath the perfectly manicured exterior of Sunnydale High. Um which confirms what every teenager has always known. High school truly is hell. Um, so was this a flawless book? I would say probably not. Uh, there are elements of the original uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer run, particularly the first three um, seasons that were you know, firmly rooted in high school that have become sort of iconic. I think that uh, Belair did a great job um, putting her own spin on some of these things. Uh, I think probably the biggest victim uh, of... Uh, this sort of uh, reboot, it was the romance between Buffy and Angel. I think that's sort of out of those first three seasons, one of the most iconic things, the sort of tragic, uh, they want to be together, but they really can't think that was going on. That's really kind of completely been jettisoned in this. Uh, they also take one of the original series characters and and promptly uh, do something completely out of the box by turning this character into a bad guy, into a, a vampire. Um, which came out of nowhere as well and and is kind of a I think people will have sort of a love-hate relationship with that particular take too but I think there's a lot to love here Um, I think the characterization of high school Buffy is pretty spot on I like that uh, Willow starts out right away kind of knowing who she is Uh, you know we don't have this huge process of her figuring out that she's uh, LGBTQ um, and I think, you know, her, you know, starting the first issue right away with a girlfriend and knowing exactly who she is, uh, is very, very good for the character and the character's trajectory throughout the series. Um, it, it has very interesting spins on a lot of the characters. And at the same time, it feels really true to the spirit of what made the original Buffy great. Um, I will also say that, um, they kind of introduced the idea of a multiverse, towards the end of the series. And then when the series ends, that continuity ends as well. The book has been relaunched as The Vampire Slayer, which features a completely different continuity again and new takes by a new writer on this character. Again, everything is kind of reset. So it seems to me like Boom is not married to any particular continuity uh, at this point, but is really playing around with the idea of sort of a Buffy multiverse and trying different series and seeing what sticks. Um, that's a little disappointing because this continuity is interesting and it doesn't really go even sort of the full first three high school seasons. So we could have had more high school adventures from Buffy, but the reboot book also has put some interesting ideas forth already again. So the reboot of the reboot is also pretty interesting. So I really like what I guess Boom is doing with Buffy right now. Um, even though it's pretty different in some respects from the original series, um, I'm here for it and I'm really enjoying it. And I think most uh, Buffy fans will probably enjoy at least something that is going on at Boom with Buffy the Vampire Slayer right now. I'm 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 not going to lie to you, Dave. Ever I've, I've been distracted ever since you said Cisco in Shades. Is that a Spencer for Hire reference? 
Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> okay, nailed it. Man, that's a deep cut. Wow, that is a deep <laughs> cut. Avery Brooks. I know my stuff. I may I know my stuff, man. I can't help it. <laughs> I am a nerd. Uh, what can I say? Yeah. So I think it's I think it's way past time for me to get over my misgivings about he who shall not be named and, and finally start watching Buffy. Although that I have uh, umpteen things on my plate right now. I've I've been working on one that we've had in the reps. Um I've I'm about eighty percent through it and it's taken me literally quite literally years. So I, I I'm gonna have to push through so I can get to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's it's really really uh, an iconic series in a lot of ways, and you do yeah. I mean, if you if you struggled with you know the the time period nature of Farscape, I mean, you get a lot more of that here because it's about as nineties as it gets. You know, it's a very nineties nope. show. Just the creepy, but, ass, just the creepy ass puppets. That's all. <laughs> but. <laughs> Yoda wants words with you, my friend. Um, but I, I think that uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer has a lot going for it, even to this day, uh, in how it like you know very clearly tries to invert some horror tropes and does some interesting stuff with the characters and and creates a fascinating mythology. And there's 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 so many cool things going on, and it does. Which is so weird, given who the guy who created this show turned out to be. But it has so many interesting things to say about female empowerment and about men trying to control women. And and you know, it's it's it it in a lot of ways was really ahead of its time. And it's so crazy how, how all of this turned out in the long run. It's it's so disappointing because it's so the the show is really really fantastic. Even even in some of its worst moments, it still was fantastic TV. Alrighty, folks. Well, there you have it. Those are our big nerd commendations for the month of October. Strap in because we're getting ready to head into Nerd Nightmare again. Stick around. Welcome back, ladies and gentle people, and it's time for... That's right, Nerd Nightmare returns as we're once again in October, and I, Dave, a longtime horror fan, try to further persuade Chris of the benefits of watching some scary media. Uh, To start off Nerd Nightmare, we have a, well, let's call it a drive-in double feature, as we exposed our friend Chris here to both 1988's Child's Play and 1987's Hellraiser. Let's go ahead and start with Child's Play. I'm very curious uh, of your reaction to Child's Play, Chris. Well, I I texted this to you, but I think the greatest villain in 80s films as a whole are neglectful parents. I mean, you start off the movie with the mom not waking up to this child making a heck of a lot of noise in the kitchen spilling everywhere just the parent in me was just cringing every time he spilled orange juice on the floor there was milk everywhere uh yikes he could have started a fire with that toast oh my god um one thing that uh real connective tissue the being the imdb nerd that i am i knew that i recognized katherine hicks the mom from somewhere and so we have some trek Connectivity, some tractivity, I guess, if you will. Um, she was in the fourth Star Star Trek film, um, the one with the whales, as you might know it. Um, 
And then also you add the lead detective played by Chris Sarandon. You know him probably as uh, Prince Humperdinck, or he also made some exp- uh, uh, an appearance on DS9, our beloved. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't know. Listen to your children. There were some really revisionist things, you know, 34 years later. If a kid tells you something's going on, you should probably listen to them and point that little shit into the lake. Like, why are we even entertaining this doll to begin with? Um, Also, um, how the third-hand market of buying things off of the street from vagabonds ever took off after this movie is beyond me. Never trust anything you buy off of a homeless guy on the street. Um, It might be possessed by the soul of a serial killer. Um, The biggest, I think my biggest, um, my biggest takeaway from both of these movies, um, as the kids say, no plot, just vibes. There was a lot of, let's just go with it when it came to telling these stories in these. Um, a lot of things didn't make sense, but they just ran with it. And I guess that's an admirable thing to roll with. Um, uh, as a parent, the amount of time that this six-year-old child spent unsupervised was truly traumatizing to me. He's just running around um, Chicago. Um, he's getting on the subway by himself, getting off. Literally no adult is like, hey, something is awry here. There is a small child unsupervised on this subway with this hilariously large doll. Should we check into that? Um, So, yeah, um, really cool line delivered by Andy where he says, you know, Chucky says to him, friends till the end. And he just like goes beast mode and goes, this is the end and sets him on fire. That was really cool. (laughs) So like mic drop moment, unfortunately wasn't a mic drop moment because that little shit did not die after that. He like got back alive like two or three more times. Um, but yeah, so wasn't really scared. Um, just really concerned. Um, and DCS should have been called several times. <laughs> Don't you know that 80s parents never gave a <laughs> yeah. This is not like... <laughs> Helicopter parenting came in the 90s, it is very clear, as a as a direct reaction to the 80s. Probably all the traumatized kids from the 80s grew up and were like, nope, not with my kids. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's kind of almost a trope about 1980s movies that the parents are absent or nowhere to be found or don't really care or everybody's unsupervised. How else can these kids get up to this hijinks? Um but, you know, I really have a soft spot for the first Child's Play. I think the second one is sort of the the perfect form of this movie. Um, and then it kind of devolved into parody. Um, but I think the first one still has a lot of good stuff. It's not really frightening, um, but it does, it does go, as you said, kind of with the vibes. It's creepy, definitely. I really like how... If you know nothing about the movie and you like no advertisement or anything, just the way the movie is made for like the first half of it, you could almost think, like, is Andy nuts? Is is Andy doing all this stuff? And and he's just like projecting onto this doll, like 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 Andy's nuts, right? Like this is all Andy. There's there's no way it's the doll, right? It's kind of cool that they went with that. Um, even though you gotta believe that the marketing probably included a whole bunch of look, it's a killer doll. Um but, you know, just devoid of that, you could almost feel like it's just like Andy's crazy and he's doing all these things. Um, and then just like in the second half, it goes completely like chaos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so it almost feels like two different movies. 
uh, like ha- there's a turning point and it's like, oh yes, Chucky is really doing this and it's own. <laughs> it's it's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I don't th- I don't think it's the most frightening movie, Chris. Absolutely. I, I do benefit in, indeed from 34 years of hindsight. So um, one one a couple more funny notes. Uh, number one, I had a my buddy doll when I was growing up. I did too. And my, I did too. And so like my, my mom kept talking about this like off and on when like topic would come up, and even though I'd never seen the movie, so that was really funny. Um, and then secondarily, another parental observation: um, your best friend was just murdered uh or died in this house and you slept in that same house that night seems seems weird right yeah (laughs) did you i have to ask were you an only child oh god no i have three younger sisters well see that's fascinating because i always felt like my buddy was like the perfect doll for only children you know because it's like almost almost as big as you you can pretend it's like a real person you know it's like i have no friends and no family but at least i have my buddy now um, i was i was the only boy so I, I i probably did benefit in that way yeah yeah i was i was an only child and and i did have a my buddy but thankfully i also make friends easy so that explains so much no i'm just kidding oh, yeah. <laughs> feel free to feel free to psychoanalyze me i'm very curious what you're going to say next <laughs> what does this explain about me chris um but I absolutely, I absolutely still adore this movie. I think it's a really good fun time. Uh, not to be like scared out of your mind, but it's definitely something I would put on like in the background on Halloween or something and be like, yeah, it's Child's Play. Still good fun, even after all these years. It's a very punny title. Oh, God. It's just, again, even the title is like, it's Andy, right? Like Andy's nuts. Mm-hmm. It's a child. You know, like, like this is definitely Andy. I love that about this movie. Um yeah, so uh, the next one I have some interesting thoughts on, but I'm definitely interested to hear your reaction to uh, 1987's Hellraiser by Clive Barker. Yeah, get that bleep button back out. What the f*** was this movie? <laughs> like, it <laughs> truly, what was this movie? Like, I'm, I'm absolutely just like, what masochistic self-flagellation fantasy whatever what's this like i don't like this this even more so than child's play was just like no plot just vibes um yeah uh, so the 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 contractivity was cool and seeing um our poor beloved taylor um as a cuckold and and just have you know his wife run around on him with his hedonistic brother um and just like all of this was just wild so um shouts to andrew robinson um who really acted his off there at the end and that was probably like the only saving grace of the film was his his heel turn as frank like wore his skin or whatever um also kirsty did you not see the large like obvious cuts on your daddy's forehead girl um my goodness um also steve is a real one for going into that house like girl you better you better marry that guy because he was really willing to go through it for you um yeah i i don't have a whole lot to say about this movie it was freaking weird um it was really i can see why it's like a cult classic for like goth kids and stuff um, but yeah, it's not a whole lot going on in this movie, except Andrew Robinson carrying the, the brunt of this movie. 
Julia's weird. She's just yeah. She's just awful. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna point out that uh, the the whole you know wedding dress laying on the bed scene kind of did it for yes, me with this movie. Yes. I was I was oh I was kind of come on. I was kind of done with the movie at that point. Yeah, it was that was that was some low stuff. So I was done with the movie at that point. The first time I saw it, I am actually not a big fan of of Hellraiser one. I think two is a little better. I actually think when when the franchise goes off the rails with three and four, it is actually significantly better. Um, one of the big things that they needed to harness was friggin' Doug Bradley as Pinhead. He he has probably the best performance in this movie, um, and he he is, you know, in three and four, I would say he's almost as iconic as like a Freddy Krueger. Like Doug Bradley's Pinhead is is an icon of horror, but not because of this movie. Um, and I think the second one is not much much better either. But three and four, when it's allowed to you know be a be a franchise that gets to be crazy in a good way rather than crazy in a weird way um it becomes significantly better i'm i actually enjoyed hellraiser 3 the first time i saw it and hellraiser 4 which is bloodlines um it kind of has this almost epic scope it traces the history of the the puzzle box from when it was made all the way into like the future it's it that that one is really 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 cool um but i have very little patience for this for this first movie it just feels icky all the time I don't that's, feel scared. That's my, biggest, just... that's, my biggest, that's my biggest takeaway. This movie is not scary at all. At no point was I scared. It's gross. Like the close-up shots on cockroaches and insects and skin being torn and flesh. It's just gross. So I was yeah, nauseated. Yeah. I was nauseated throughout. Um, and I think my biggest frustration is I was intrigued by um the the cenobites and by pinhead by the design and just like by pop culture like being scared of the vhs box when i was in the video rental stores back in the day was was scary enough so i was interested to dive into that but i was really underwhelmed by the lack of inclusion the lack of explanation on the box and everything surrounding the cenobites like why did we not spend over half the film there we just wanted to go with the whole adultery angle. Like that was not not enticing to carry a movie. And it's fascinating because what you, with all the skin tearing and stuff, you know, I've kind of gotten used to you're desensitized, I guess, to, to you know, from watching a whole bunch of horror. That's not the stuff that made me feel icky. It was all the interpersonal stuff that made me feel icky. Like the movies is is icky on on a storytelling level. So I'm I'm just not a big fan of this one. I know I'm probably going to get some flack. Uh, for for that from other horror fans, it's, it's an iconic movie, you know, and I understand all that. But um, to me, um, Hellraiser didn't really get interesting until three and four. That I think those two movies are significantly more fun. Um, and I do I do watch horror movies for fun, believe it or not. There's a th- there's a thrill associated with it. It's a lot of fun to watch a good horror movie, but this this just wasn't fun. It was icky. Alrighty, folks, there you have it, our first Nerd Nightmare of the season. But don't worry, we'll return with more Nerd Nightmare next week. Uh, That's it for another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Uh, You know, uh, if you like what you heard, you know, you could, like, listen some more. We have a great back catalog of 121 episodes to check out. Uh, You can uh, get on your favorite podcasting platform. You can uh, subscribe. You can drop us a rating, a review, and uh, never miss another episode. 
Uh, we are pretty much available on every podcasting platform that you can imagine. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. We are there, including our very own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com. And be sure to um, check out Bureau 42's October reviews, which are going to be in companion with this, written by our dear friend, number one listener, at Lex Pendragon on Twitter. Um, he has already written uh, the Child's Play review. And by the time you're hearing this episode, you'll see both the Child's Play one and the Hellraiser as well. Um, be sure to check out the links in our bios on our socials for merch, for Discord server, all the good links that you need in your life. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Thank mm-hmm. you.